0: I'm Kaleole Kalona, and this is Nashville. What is the first poem you learned? Think about it for a second. Mine was the classic, Roses Are Red. Poetry can express love and passion, anger and regret even whimsy and frivolity. It's an art that takes experience, emotion, and imagery and connects to the soul. Major Jackson has been walking the path of the poet for decades. He's been awarded the Pushcart Prize, published five books of poems, and edited the best American poetry. And now, He's about to release a book of new and selected poems. Later this hour, we'll talk with Major Jackson about his writing, his work as host of the Slowdown podcast, and his election to the Academy American Academy of Arts and Sciences. But first, several new laws targeting transgender Tennesseans took effect at the start of this month. Here to talk about them is WPLN's Mariana Bacayao. Hey, Mariana, good to see you again. Welcome back to This is Nashville.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: All right, so to start, can you give us an overview? What new laws are on the books?
1: There are four new laws total, and listeners are likely familiar with the big two, the ban on gender-affirming care for minors and the law that narrowly defines sex to be your sex assigned at birth in the state's constitution. There was already a law on the books that prohibits trans athletes from playing on the sports team that aligns with their gender in public K-12 schools and state colleges. Now, a new bill extends that to include the state's private K-12 schools. And the last law gives legal protections for teachers who don't use a student's preferred pronoun, provided the student is trans or non-binary.
0: All right. So what about the laws that didn't go into effect?
1: Well, most notable there is the law restricting drag in public spaces. A federal judge struck that down last month after issuing a temporary injunction. So the courts prevented that law from taking effect. But if it had, it would have been in April, which is a little ahead of when new laws usually take effect. Most have a start date of July 1st.
0: Okay, so going back to the law you mentioned just now, narrowing the definition of sex in the state constitution. What does that mean for trans folks?
1: Well, it means they can't change the gender marker on their driver's license or their birth certificates, but it doesn't impact their ability to legally change their names. I spoke with Jordan Stringer of Legal Aid Society. He's running a clinic to help people petition to change their names. And he says the process is not as daunting as people may think. Our names are really fundamental to how we engage with the world and how we represent ourselves. And under Tennessee law, if you have lived here for six months and you are an adult over 18 years of age, there is still a process that you can go through to get that name changed. So he says it's still an easy and legal process.
0: All right. And the ban on gender affirming care for trans youth that didn't go into effect at the start of the month as lawmakers wanted, but is in effect now. Tell me what happened.
1: So there's been some legal back and forth on the constitutionality of this law. The ACLU and Lambda Legal sued to block the law on behalf of three Tennessee families. The U.S. Department of Justice also filed a similar injunction to temporarily stop the law from taking effect at the start of this month. And they were successful at first. A federal judge sided with the plaintiffs and temporarily blocked the law.
0: Feels like there's a bud coming.
1: But hours after that ruling, Tennessee's Attorney General Jonathan Scrametti made an emergency appeal to the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. And last weekend, that three-judge panel sided with Scrametti in a two-to-one decision. It's the first time a federal court has allowed a ban on gender-affirming care to take effect. Other states like Florida, Alabama, and Arkansas have passed similar laws, but the federal judges in those states blocked the law and didn't have a higher court reverse that decision.
0: All right. So what's next for this law and for families of transgender kids?
1: A lot of families have already been eyeing other states in case this law went through. But getting access to that care might mean a further drive than many families were originally anticipating. Tennessee is now surrounded by states that have passed or proposed bans of their own. And not all families have the ability to go out of state. Lucas Cameron Vaughn is a lawyer with the ACLU of Tennessee. He says that not everyone can afford the travel expenses or the time off of work. Families that don't have the resources to access the care out of state are going to lose access to the medical care altogether. And that will greatly increase the risk that their children will suffer from some depression, anxiety or even suicide. You know, the families I've talked to are terrified. As for the law, the current appeals court ruling allowing Tennessee's ban to take effect is temporary. The court has until the end of September to reach a final decision on whether the law will stay in effect while the lawsuit continues.
0: That is WPLN's Mariana Bacayau. You can find the link to her story on this episode's web post at WPLN.org. Thanks for your reporting as always, Mariana.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk with acclaimed poet, Vanderbilt professor, and now member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, Major Jackson. Do you have a favorite poem by Major Jackson? Let us know by tweeting us at ThisIsNashville. Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Kaleole Kelowna, and this is Nashville. In 1780, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences was formed to quote, to cultivate every art and science. In the 243 years since, the Academy has has inducted some of the most brilliant writers and thinkers into its ranks. Poet and Vanderbilt English professor Major Jackson is one of the Academy's newest members. Major Jackson is the author of the books, The Absurd Man, Roll Deep, Holding Company, Hoops, and Leaving Saturn. He's also been working as podcast host for The Slowdown with American Public Media, all while preparing for the release of his latest book, a collection of new and selected poems. He's a busy man, and we're honored that he's agreed to give us a little bit of his time to talk. I'd like to welcome Major Jackson to This is Nashville. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, thank you for so much for being back with us and congratulations to you, my friend, for your election to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Tell me how- Thank you, how, beaucoup, and gracias. Oh yes, de nada, my friend. How does it feel to be in?
2: Well, <clears throat> it's a, obviously a deep, deep honor. Um, slightly overwhelming. I got the news while I was, interestingly enough, recording and in between uh, recordings, I opened up my email and the announcement was there, or rather the letter was there. And I walked out. I had to, I kind of told my producer, I got to take a minute here, catch my breath. It's one of the kind of, if you're in the humanities, it's, it's one of the great honors. And for me, it was one in which I kind of did one of those kind of like quick, if you can think cinematically, just just a quick rewind all the way back to those early years of being a writer and all the books, all the poems I read, the literature, the engagement, all culminated to this monumental moment for me. And so I was deep in my feelings, as we say. Mm. Did, did you
0: think of anyone in particular, a teacher, professor, or a conversation that you've had over the years as you learned about this great achievement?
2: Man, so many so many writers that I can point to who have inspired me or taught me like um, Sonia Sanchez and at Temple University as an undergrad and Garrett hongo as my graduate uh, teacher mentor at University of Oregon but a number of the folks who are not writers who are also part of that uh, that uh, that the academy like Duke Ellington and um, Pablo Picasso, you just name it. You know, there's international as well as uh, American international honorees as well as Americans. So, when you when you throw all those names in there, artists, politicians, um, you you start to understand the great kind of weight that being a writer and being a poet and the significance of it. Um, how it's also an art form that's treasured as part of giving a portrait of who we are, thinking about our past, thinking about some solutions vis-a-vis language uh, that could move us forward. You know, you mentioned some of the greats,
0: Duke Ellington, Pablo Picasso, Glenn Close is a member, um, founding fathers John Hancock and others Mm -hmm. are, are, are members of this esteemed society of intellectuals and artists. What makes that special for you? because you have been selected for your work and your poetry.
2: <laughs> for me, it, it suggests that um, several things. One, there's a poet that we no longer read um, uh, named Michael Harper, who talks about being in a continuum of conscious and, consciousness, I should say. And my work has always wanted to engage um uh, poetry, but particularly Afro-American poetry, um, American poetry, and global poetries. And this honor suggests that, um, not only am I in those, in that stream, but I'm also, uh, engaged in other areas of our lives in which we are contemplating, um, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to use language and use language artfully? Um, uh, how can we capture the present moment and divine the moment that we're living in? So for me, it, it, it kind of honors all of those questions that I've been kind of engaged with. Um, and it feels like a pivot moment. It feels like, you mm-hmm. know, in the year in which I'm putting out Literally five days before the actual ceremony, my sixth book will be published. So it it feels like a very fruitful moment for me to be contemplating uh, what's next. Mm.
0: Your 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 talents and abilities and skills have are completely fertile uh, to to use a term. You know, do you have a sense of what you want to do? You know, to accompl- of what you want to accomplish as a member.
2: Um oh, I'm, I'm contemplating an epic <laughs> <laughs> that forwards the humanities as kind of central to um how we understand the world, N- no offense to science and of course uh, the the great kind of questions that we're wrestling with right now, artificial intelligence, but uh, we really have to come back to um the centrality of of Human experience, human emotion, um, and and also human safety. I was, you know, just thinking about some of the trans laws that you just covered, and and we're not creating a space in which people feel safe. So how can language be accountable to kind of push us towards understanding um, uh, these these very visceral questions that we are? dealing with. So I'm joking when I say an epic, but mm. I do think it's a level of maturity when you can start thinking about your work within um outside of which a lot of people think of poetry as this kind of egocentric space. But it's a level of maturity when you can kind of negotiate both the 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 small daily aspects of life um, and maybe translate that as best as you can to larger questions of community, large mm-hmm. questions of identity, nationhood, selfhood, all those things that, um, you know, people like uh, Walt Whitman um, and uh, uh, Amiri Barak and, and uh, uh, Allen Ginsberg and so many other poets were thinking about how to make poetry Uh, relevant in a way that feels authentic to themselves by way of their aesthetics, but also um, meaningful to a large body of readerships or Mm. listeners.
0: Yeah. You know, that's how, that's what I appreciate about poetry because no matter how much time you spend with it, it allows, gives you the opportunity to be contemplative and to think about Mm. life outside of yourself and others. And, you know. You know, I'm looking at what you do. You're a full time author. You're as well. You're also the Gertrude Conaway Vanderbilt Chair of the English Department. But you also host the Slowdown Podcast for American Public Media mm. and the Poetry Foundation. And mm-hmm. can you can you really briefly describe to our
2: listeners what they expect should they tune in? Sure. Well, first of all, shout out to um, all the producers in APMG Studios who kind of committed over. Now, in almost I want to say seven years, um, uh, almost seven years, to presenting a poem um, uh, by way in the in the podcast medium, presenting a poem that is preceded by a moment of thinking about how the poem speaks to some aspect of uh, the host's life. I happen to be the third uh, host previously preceded by. Um, two now now former poet laureates, our current Ada Lamont and before that, Tracy K. Smith. Mm. And so my producer and I, uh, Micah Kilbon, um, along with Beth Perlman, um, we kind of scour books, magazines, online publications, journals for poems that we feel as though can reach the widest audience. But maybe more importantly, something that I can kind of uh, be triggered into some some past moment, some antidote that I can share. Hopefully with humor, uh, hopefully with some wisdom behind it, but it's it's a quick podcast. It's like five to seven minutes, seven minutes max. I try to, to be honest, try to get us down to three, but ah. those would be haikus that wouldn't work. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> so, Did you ever envision yourself in the radio podcasting profession?
2: You know, during the pandemic, I started, um, like many of us, I guess, kind of envisioning and contemplating putting together a podcast. And I I own these cassettes. I collect cassettes of poets reading. And some of them are my own recordings from just having read with so many poets over the years. And I want to share like that special moment that happens when you are at a reading, and the author is channeling something greater than just that moment, just that self, we're brought we're brought together in this almost kind of sacred space of human exchange. Something you mentioned earlier about um, how you value poetry as something that is being that is reflective. It's reflective and it also emerges from an individual who has their own unique experience. How often do we give each other that kind of audience, particularly in the medium of a poem? We might say, well, there's other forms of art. Yes, true, but something about the distillation of a poem being so central to The identity and selfhood of a of a single person. So that was going to be my podcast. It was going to be called. You ready? Ready Mm -hmm. for it? Yeah, yeah. Major voices. Oh, nice. You like that? Yeah, that's nice
0: little flip right
2: there. (laughs) Um, So I didn't envision, but let me just say, you know, this podcast, uh, the slowdown is, and what I would have been doing had I had my, you know, ducks in a row with major voices. Um, would have been a continuation of something that I've been doing for a long time and that is serving as an advocate of the art serving as someone who looks at language and literature and and all the literary arts as a kind of a state and in a way me as a caretaker of that state mm. so as a teacher you know and and maybe even as a friend I'd like to matchmake I want to put in for put forward Poets, more importantly, poems that might be meaningful. So the slowdown, meaningful to listeners or readers, so, or, or maybe an inspiring poet. So the slowdown is just a continuation of my work as a curator of poetry, as a teacher of poetry, um, as someone who has showed up at weddings, uh, funerals, and, and brought something that was fitting for the moment. Props to you for keeping
0: tape cassettes alive. I'm totally in <laughs> to that mission.
2: Yeah. <laughs> you got to, gotta to do it. Gotta do it. Well, I didn't mention. You know what really helped me up was digitizing them, and <laughs> and I haven't found a quick, fast uh, method process of doing that.
0: No you got to go through every summer jam that you've ever recorded. I understand that. Right, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Echolona. We're talking this hour with Major Jackson about poetry, podcasting, and his election to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. You have a question for Major? Tweet us at ThisIsNashville. Now, you know, Major, a lot of people have approached me about their own podcast idea or starting how they can get one going themselves, and the first thing I tell them is that as much harder than they think? A lot more than just setting up some microphones and talking. But you know, you have recited poems to crowds and you've read them aloud. Was there a learning curve for you when you started hosting the Slowdown? Oh,
2: that is such on point. <laughs> you know, when you're when you are giving a reading publicly your body is there you know your body maybe even before you start speaking people you know there's a poet you know hopefully you're not wearing you know one of those french berets or something like that but they know you're a poet they're waiting for you you know Mm -hmm. and there's gesticulation that happens and there is um maybe you might even move your body into it You can't do that on the radio. No one sees you. you (laughs) So somehow you have to, through your voice, translate some of the nuances of the words of the poems, its meaning, maybe even how it's, how it lineates or what it looks like on the form. Um, I mean, on the page, the form on the page. Um, The other learning curve for me was, I grew up with a grandmother who just was adamant about enunciation Mm -hmm. every word had to have its proper like sounding so you know this you know pickups you know i can read a poem and it may you may hear the end result but i can assure you there was probably at least mm, a dozen takes oh yeah uh particularly early on i think i'm a little bit more seasoned now but Yeah, that was the learning curve. I would also say I am reading closer than I ever have before. And it has to do with me thinking about audience, not so much demographic, but how the poem may sound in the ear Mm. and to different audiences. So I understand and have heard from People in Australia who share their, share the slowdown episodes, podcasts with their children. I have um, my peeps in Nashville. I have uh, friends who are poets themselves who are listening and a very devoted listenership who was listening long before I even took up the helm. So everyone is listening for some some angle. Sometimes it's, you know, the sound of the poem. Sometimes it's the, what might emerge as wisdom. Um, some folks are, are treasuring how the poem fits within their day, their routine in the morning or after work or in the evening. And somehow I have to be present enough to have the poem speak to wherever they are at that moment. That's, that's a new level of engaging the art that I hadn't previously mm. um, considered.
0: You know, as you said, the podcast is five to seven minutes long and that's enough time to really get in, drop these gems and get out mm-hmm. and have an mm-hmm. impact the listener and the audience the way that you just described. Tell me, what have you learned? from sitting in the host chair. How how has that impacted your relationship with your craft?
2: Yeah, I have been writing. I'm part of a Monday writing group who's meeting right now as we speak. Mm. And the poems for me, I'm, I'm thinking about, when I first started writing, I would write these long kind of narrative poems, very attentive to, uh, music or a lyric dimension, um, uh, uh, a, a kind of melodicness to it, but I'm finding myself going more towards shorter poems that are more impactful. You know, much in the same way that the poems that I read are uh, on the slowdown. So that's that's not that I haven't done that in the past, but I'm returning to returning to. Um, brevity and economy as essential elements of how a poem may reach and maybe even just drop down some questions, you know, how Mm -hmm. it lingers. Um, That's exciting to me. Okay, now you've agreed to read some of your work with us. I I have. We
0: are truly, truly grateful. Will you read (laughs) Will you share one with us now?
2: Sure. Uh, What's the title? This is, the title is How to Listen and I'll give some background on this. I grew up in Philadelphia. uh, And in Philadelphia, particularly around the time that I was writing this, a number of states had closed down mental hospitals. And so the the homeless population were often folks who suffered from some sort of mental illness. And I encountered this one particular person who was wearing a... Um, military jacket when it was green army jackets and I just imagined him to have been a veteran and used him as a um, someone that I, I felt as though a figure that I felt as though we should listen to to hear their stories their narratives how to listen I'm going to cock my head tonight like a dog in front of McGlinchey's tavern on locust. I'm going to stand beside the man who works all day combing his thatch of gray hair, corkscrewed in every direction. I'm going to pay attention to our lives unraveling between the forks of his fine-tooth comb. For once, we won't talk about about the end of the world or Vietnam or his exquisite paper shoes. For once, I'm going to ignore the dancing and the profanity and the jukebox so I can hear his head crackle beneath the sky's stretch of faint stars.
0: Wow. T- tell me more about that piece.
2: Well, I think the... um. McGlinchey's Tavern, by the way, is this kind of uh, legendary bar in in downtown Philadelphia where a number of either academics or intellectually leaning folks would would, uh, populate in the evening. And, you know, one could encounter uh, at the bar debates on philosophers as much as uh, how horrible the bear was! You know, they <laughs> they went hand in hand. Okay, um, and so I, I intentionally placed it there because it is one of those spaces where um, conversation is important, language important, as important as sports too. Don't don't get me wrong. There's definitely there were screens there, but to ignore all of that and pay attention to the least wise among us seems like something that we should be doing more frequently. and the the last line, so I can hear his head crackle, that's both literal and figurative um, beneath the sky stretch of faint stars, as if you know, to read the to read this person or engage this person is as important as engaging the cosmos or the large questions of existence beyond us. somehow i believe the least wise among us do have the answer at least they can reflect some aspect of our humanity or corner of human experience that we do not and will not experience ourselves so um i this is the last poem i should say in my uh first book and in a way it sets an agenda for the rest of my my books. I always want to be attentive to human experiences that are on the margins or outside of mainstream conversations. It's like the,
0: to me, it reflects on slowing down, you know, and and learning, learning from somebody. (laughs) Like the the man, the man you described in this poem reminds me of some of the people I would talk to and listen to when I was working as a bar manager in Albuquerque, New Mexico, people who were Mm -hmm. unhoused, they used to come around for food or water and You know, I would take time and talk to them because there I did gain a lot of insight and a lot of wisdom, not only on their lives, but humanity and the human experience. Mm -hmm. And right now our society is so, so fast paced. We don't, Mm -hmm. we don't see the people in front of us and we missed opportunities, not only for connection, but for true understanding. Let me ask you this. To you, what is the place of poetry in this fast paced world we're living in? Well you,
2: you answered half of it right there. I I think in a way the the level of attention that a poem demands, it's not like, you know, a kind of twenty minute quick streaming episode of the latest uh show mm-hmm. that's hot right now. Um it, it really does have us kind of pay attention to language. Pay attention to syntax, how sentences are built together. Pay attention to music, the, the, the what a friend of mine calls kind of the, the inner music of language. Um, uh, but I want to go back to, uh, as I like often to say, when you read a poem, it makes you aware of how language is used outside, in, during, in our everyday lives. And so, when we encounter language, often it's to sell us something.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, often it is to um, uh, uh, influence us. Uh, language is highly, highly persuasive. Most poems do not carry that kind of intense. Agenda setting. Most don't. There are some that do, that get into the into areas of proselytizing one particular perspective. But lately, I've been saying, you know, if you hear a news report that doesn't sound right, if you uh, encounter a mayoral speech that doesn't sound right, go to a poem. You go to a book of poems. It's almost like rinsing, rinsing Mm. your mind in a way. So I do think the role of poetry is always to keep us ever aware of, of how language operates in in our world and in society. Um, and not to say that those other uses of language are not legitimate, but, but often we need to kind of like be aware we're cliches that arise that may dehumanize individuals or make us fear each other or make us not feel good about ourselves. I mean, you know, these are methods, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so poetry, the, the, the function of poetry is is all of, all of that, but also um, to make us ever attentive.
0: Well, let's stay attentive after this quick break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Major Jackson and learn about his path to becoming a poet, a path that took him through Nashville as a youth. What does poetry mean to you? Let us know by tweeting us at ThisIsNashville. We'll be right back. Colonna, and this is Nashville. We're talking this hour with acclaimed poet, essayist, professor, and podcaster Major Jackson, who was elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences earlier this year. Before the break, we discussed the essence of poetry and its place in our fast-paced world. Now let's learn about how he fell in love with poetry and found his voice as a writer. Major Jackson, thanks again for being with us today.
2: My pleasure. So Thank you.
0: Have uh, you have you always wanted to be a poet and writer?
2: Yeah, it it kind of goes back to kind of two rivers running side by side. One of them was in my house. My grandparents um, had a book collection and there were two important books in there. The only books of poetry. One was the selected poems of Langston Hughes, and the other was this paperback edition of Robert Frost poems. And I took to those uh, books because when I had to, (laughs) when I was told to read a book, turn off the TV, um, books of poems were right there and they were short. You know, I Hmm. I could digest a poem in 15 minutes or less and... When my grandmother or grandfather asked if you read, I said, "Yeah, I read a poem," and they couldn't argue with that. You know, it wasn't "War and Peace." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the other was, um, you know, like a lot of kids of in my youth, my generation was part of that second wave of of young men and women inspired by hip hop. And many of us either wanted to be a DJ or wanted to be an MC. I was of the latter and had my book of rhymes, uh, which I didn't share often. Um, and eventually, though, that is what sensitized me to language and brought me to the idea that poetry could be made up of language that we used every day. And not only that, it can reflect the lives that we lived, at least in my, my neighborhood, um, in the streets of North Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And so there was this early on, this populist notion of language operating at an artful in an artful way, uh, for the purpose of reflecting uh experiences of my life and in, in those um around me. Okay, now you mentioned that
0: these books Robert Frost, Langston Hughes from your grandparents' house, but also the influence of hip hop. Gotta ask you a few questions about that. Did you Uh-oh. have did you have an MC name?
2: Oh man. What'd you call yourself? This is this is embarrassing. I was MC dink that rhymes with think. I was trying to play off a of think, oh, nice, think. Nice. But you know, and, and there's a lot that can rhyme with think. Think, mm-hmm. you know, think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and keep going on. It's mink. cold, get yourself a mink.
0: Yeah, exactly. We're we're, we're going there. Look, I was I I, I called myself details uh, when I first started. So Ooh, we all see details. Yeah, because I spent too much time in the details in the weeds. It was <laughs> too many words. But you know, okay. So on the form of hip hop, who were your influences? Like, what was it about their words that made
2: you want to pick up the pen? Wow. Um... Rakim, for example, mm-hmm. um, just you know, uh, taking the art itself and making a metaphor of it. All the all the metaphor making, all the and and the cadence and the flow. And so, what folk, what people probably don't realize now is that we've gone through multiple kind of idioms and shifts and how people flowed. Mm-hmm. And the flow was your essence. Like it was your spirit. It was like how you walked, how you like engaged, even almost as important as what you wore, you know? And you can go to the eighties and see what we wore, of course, you yes. can Google eighties hip hop and see what we wore. But just that sense of style, like that, that early on impressed upon me A necessity to kind of be authentic with language on the page, or if I was back then rapping, or later in life if I was reading before an audience, that I don't know, you know, if if you're a serious artist, and you know, by the way, we got to also say that um, um, uh, artists are very; they're as much uh, listeners, if they're musicians, Mm -hmm. if they are visual artists, they look at other visual artists and they know the history of their material. Um, if you're a writer or a poet, like you go, you go deep and in and inside language and inside the art to learn how to manipulate language and how to stress, stretch out words, all of that. So for me, that was, Early on, I understood that I had to be a reader. You know, I had to be someone who not just wrote from this very egocentric space, but also someone who was going to carry the the history of the art form and awareness and knowledge. And I got that from early on, from listening to to, uh, the rappers. You Mm -hmm. know, they high-fived each other. You know, they... um, uh, off of each other, uh, and you know, you know most,
0: and then, yeah, and, I'm sorry. And, and now we're seeing like the effects of people on being able to understand the, the importance and the value and the relationship between hip hop, these MCs, these writers and poetry. I mean, they in the recent years, artists like Tupac and Nas, people are looking at their lyrics the same way we look at Bob Dylan's lyrics.
2: Yes, that's right. Because I think, you know, not only is it a a window into uh, the moments in which they were writing, but it also allows us to see some of the innovation such that we can build on that, on that innovation. And that's a really important part of being any kind of like professional artist or, or even a, you know, athlete you You study what's been done in the past, you know some of the some of the the jazz artists that I listen to, or even hip hop artists there's not too many today that I listen to, but i can I can hear that they're carrying forward previous approaches um yeah oh. it's 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 pretty phenomenal to engage the art from inside like that, yeah yeah to be inside and have a history
0: i mean it's, it's hip hop turns 50 this year real quick where do you, where do you want to see it grow
2: oh man um i i feel as though hip hop grows when we become curious about each other and not just representing where we're from and so it would be interesting to see how the lyrics do more than you know as <laughs> Jay Z once said, be more than just a person bragging on the song, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it starts to reflect um, the issues that many of us face um, that challenges um, our dignity. You know, I would like for the art to return to those roots. Mm-hmm.
0: If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil lake We're talking this hour with the poet Major Jackson about his craft and how he found his voice. You can tweet us your comments at This Is Nashville. Now, you've been in, here in Nashville working at Vanderbilt teaching English, but I understand that you have deeper connections to the city going back
2: to your childhood. Tell me about yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, geez, from age two to age 12, uh, my grandparents who were originally from nashville brought me and my cousins down here um for (laughs) it felt like right up until school started up north
0: Mm.
2: which was early september and we most of my family lived in north of nashville i have very faint it's almost like black and white memories of playing in hadley park and what seems, you know, I was talking to a, a re- cousin recently. I was like, "Did we, did we actually roll down the hill of the Capitol?" Like, I can't hmm. even imagine that now. Like, my 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 body feels like broke just thinking about you know <laughs> yeah. rolling down that hill. But I have a lot of lot of memories. I haven't, they haven't emerged yet in my work. But what what has happened since my arrival is. Instigation to explore the history of my family here, particularly my grandfather's side, who I'm named after, named after uh, Major Gooch. I'm Major Jackson, of course, and I, I got a haircut, my first haircut uh, over there near Fisk. Uh, the barber, her last name was Gooch, and I just, you know, couldn't help but start asking, you know. And we didn't find an immediate link, but I'm really curious about uh, Ancestry here and some of what I've already discovered um, Mm -hmm. that I'm looking forward to including in my my poems.
0: Mm -hmm. What does that mean to not only be in this place where your Ancestry is, you know, to rediscover it as an adult, but also, you know, here... Part of the line and the work that you do is such a deep literary tradition here in Nashville. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, the, as we know, the the history here in Nashville is so important to the history of the country. And that makes me very, very proud. Um, and I, I also believe in epigenetics. I believe that we carry memories in our bodies. And to some extent, I, I walk these streets, and as I've said elsewhere, can feel the presence or at least think about my grandparents' childhood here and their grandparents, who, by the way, I should say, you know, I'm, people often think major is, is a rank, particularly when they first meet me, and I have to say, no, it's my name, and it goes back mm. to pre-Civil War. And, you know, my grandfather's father was born in slavery somewhere around um, uh, Murfreesboro. Um, That, what it means for me to be back is to kind of tap into that as a source of power and meaning for and purpose for my art. Mm
0: -hmm. Now we only have a few minutes left and I do want you to read one more piece with us, but I do quickly, I want to talk about your book that's coming out pretty soon in a few months. It's called razzle dazzle. What's the meaning behind that title?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Razzle dazzle. Let's see. Um, Again, it's I set these agendas for myself in a way, uh, and maybe they're achievable or not. But you know, I believe you know, a poem should be as good as any uh, uh, symphonic score should be as good and capture our attention as any uh, uh, Picasso canvas. Um, I I want language to kind of perform at that kind of that level at that height. I want it to be awe inspiring. And um, Razzle Dazzle also speaks to some of my aesthetic, which is I, I firmly believe in metaphoric language. I, I love how through either um, uh, similes or metaphors or alleg- you know, allegorical uh, speech, we can, in a way, talk in code to each other. And those various levels, holding those various levels of meaning, I think is really important to our growth as individuals. Mm-hmm. So Razzle Dazzle, at least in the title, is both aesthetic, it's aspirational. Um, it is it is what we call uh, an Ars Poetica. It is, it is how I approach the poem.
0: Okay. Well, here we go with Major Jackson reading his poem, Let Me Begin Again.
2: I'm going to read the poem, but I want to dedicate it to Maria Magdalena Campos-Pons, who's uh, my colleague at Vanderbilt University, who's also elected into the American Academy of Arts and Science. Wonderful artist, I should say. Fantastic artist. Let me begin again. Let me begin again as a quiet thought in the shape of a shell slowly examined by a brown child on a beach at dawn straining to see their future let me begin this time knowing the drumming in my dreams as me inheriting the earth is morning lighting up the rivers let me burn my vanities old music in the pines sniffers of scotch a day moon like a signature of night this time, let me circle the island of my fears only once, then live like a raging waterfall and grow a magnificent mustache. Let me not ever be the birdcage or the serrated blade or the empty season. Dear glacier, dear sea of stars, dear leopards disintegrating at the outer limits of our greed, soon we will encounter you only in motivational tweets reader i should have married you sooner this time let me not sleep like the prophet who believes he's seen infinity let me run at breakneck speeds toward sceneries of doubt i have no more dress rehearsals to attend look closer i am licking my lips mm-hmm. thank you for that you know
0: that feels like a declarative statement of purpose and dedication. Real quick, we have just under a minute left. What do
2: you want listeners to get from that? I want listeners to embody the idea that we all can begin again and pay more attention to each other and be accountable to our language and be accountable to each other. Um, and also to, to think about beginnings as as a way forward rather than what we are stressed today to value a past, uh, uh, a forgotten past of greatness. Well, in fact, we're here and we're great today. Major
0: Jackson is the Gertrude Conaway Vanderbilt Professor of English at Vanderbilt University, the author of five books of poetry, and an acclaimed essayist, podcast host, and the new inductee to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Major, thanks for being here. Thanks for sharing your beautiful work with us. And thank you for talking with me, my friend.
2: Thank you, Khalil, it's been a great, great honor, truly.
0: And thanks to you for tuning in this hour. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Today's episode was produced by our senior producer, Steve Harouche. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tutto. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. You can listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at thisisnashville. Find us on Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ecolona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody, and be good to each other.